Oh, there we go. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Everybody mm -hmm. Good afternoon. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the March 7th, 2023 City Lawrence City Commission meeting. We will um, open it up um, with, we're going to go into an executive session, so we will have the instructions later uh, at 545, which will be given by Sherry. So if I could get a motion. I move we recess an executive session for approximately 45 minutes to discuss the possibility of acquiring real property in the city pursuant to, to the exception under KSA 754319B6 for the preliminary discussion of the acquisition of real property. The justification for the executive session is to keep the possible terms and conditions of the property acquisition confidential at this time. The City Commission will resume its regular meeting in the City Commission room at approximately 545 after the executive session is concluded. Second. I got a first and second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? It passes four to zero. Where's Courtney? All the way to see. Yeah. Oh, there. Good afternoon, good evening. We're back from an executive session and we don't have anything to report at this time. So we'll get started with our March 7th, 2023 Lawrence City Commission meeting. We'll start with Sherry, who will provide us with some instructions. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. If you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the- There's a terrible echo, and we can't understand you back here at all. I apologize. The echo should be going now. If you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. When you are, part when you are participating, please unmute and turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat. All chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This means this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, those attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. Those participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Participants will be called upon in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Again, please state your name before speaking, and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you very much. Before we get started, I would like to recognize we have Boy Scout Troop number 62 here today to sit in for a little bit of our session. And I appreciate you coming and participating in the democracy, and I've um, had staff put together some little pens for you to take home. Okay, we will start with the approval of the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Are there any changes to the agenda that any commissioner would like to make? 
Move to approve the agenda. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 That passes four to zero. We're on to proclamations. The first one we're going to do is the um, proclaim the month of March 2023 as Women's Health Mo History Month. Women's History Month, I'm sorry. We've got Kathy Rose Mockery. Can you, yeah, can you help her out there? Oops. Yes. <laughs> And would you like me to face this way? That's perfect. Okay. Is this worker? Yes. Okay. All right. As Mayor Larson stated, I'm Dr. Kathy Rose Mockery. I am the former director of the Emily Taylor Center for Women and Gender Equity at KU. Uh, retired uh, just uh, about three and a half years ago. Held that position for 20 years, so Women's History Month is near and dear to my heart. I'm also a longtime resident of Lawrence. I'm just honored and so pleased to receive this uh, first ever Lawrence Women's History Month proclamation. This is really momentous. Um, I commend you all for, for celebrating Women's History Month. It speaks to the importance of women's voices in our community. Women's History Month has been celebrated nationally since 1980 when former President Jimmy Carter issued a presidential proclamation. It's a time to remember the women pioneers and trailblazers who rattled cages and fought the good fight to uh, bring us where we are today. Kansas is known for its strong women leaders and some are in the room here today. We can be proud of our record for engaging women in our community and in our city leadership. Uh, we found some records going back to 1969, which is a little more than 50 years ago. Uh, and just gonna give you a little bit of information. Um, there have been five female mayors. Two of those have had two terms. That's a little more than 25% of the mayor pool. Half of the commissioners since 2018 have been women, and a majority of the commissions since 1969 have had at least one woman, 77%. So that's a pretty good record you all can be proud of. Um, it's also important to recognize women who have not been in the public eye, but who have had an influence great-grandmothers, grandmothers, mothers, sisters, aunts. You probably all can think of some as I'm speaking. In addition to celebrating, it's also time to take a hard look at the areas of inequity that still exist for women, for those who identify as women, taking into account their other identities, such as race and ethnicity, disability, LGBTQ plus uh, status, and age, just to name a few. Um, and I forgot to give my pronouns, I always do that, she, her pronouns. So I think that's important. So back to things we need to be thinking about. 
economic disparities are top on the list. Uh, women f uh, face uh, very serious issues related to um, economic equity. Uh, pay equity and access to jobs and careers. Um, if you can't get your foot in the door, you can't make any progress going forward. And that includes in terms of housing, in terms of taking care of your children, in terms of being able to afford what you need to make your life livable. Uh, recent studies indicate that women working full-time are paid 84 cents for every dollar a man makes. This is even more critical for women of color. For example, African-American women are paid 67 cents to the dollar for every dollar paid to white men. Latinas and Native American women, 57 cents. Equal pay day, which is coming up, symbolizes how far into the year women must work to be paid what men are paid the previous year. This year is March 14th. It's later for women of color, all the way up to November. Uh, in addition, access to high quality affordable childcare, paid family, maternity and paternity leave, reproductive health access, leadership, women serving on boards and committees to have a say, uh, and gender stereotypes which still exist which affect choices, opportunities, and welcoming work environments. Some challenging decisions are coming forward in our community as we grow and evolve. Uh, women's voices and perspectives must be equally included. Uh, in the discussion. This proclamation demonstrates this commission's commitment to ensuring that this happens. I thank you for that, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. So I'll go ahead and read the proclamation now. Whereas in observance of Women's History Month, the city of Lawrence recognizes all women for their significant contribution to the shaping of our nation's identity and strengthening in our country through recorded as well as unrecorded historic contributions. And whereas during the Women's History Month, which is recognized by many countries, we celebrate women securing their own rights of suffrage and equal opportunity as well as the efforts p women put into past and current social movements. And whereas, Despite such contributions, the narrative of women has been historically undervalued, and whereas the city of Lawrence is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion as a fundamental characteristic of a healthy, vibrant, and thriving city. The presence and strength of women continues continues to enhance the quality of life in the city of Lawrence, and whereas all women of every race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and religion are to be honored and celebrated in and outside of the home and workplace. Now, therefore, I, Lisa Larson, city, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the month of March 2023 as Women's History Month, and we encourage all in our community to take this opportunity to reflect on the past and present achievements of all women as demonstrated by reaching for equality. Let us all work hard to ensure uh, such equality for all. Thank you. I will be sharing this with the Emily Taylor Center. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Kathy. Okay, next up we have 
The St. Patrick's Day Parade. Angie. So I only really have thank yous for you guys. So I don't know if you want to read that first. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go either way. You want to say something first? Well, really, we do it. yeah, no, really. I just want to uh, say, everybody remember, March 17th is next Friday, not this coming Friday. But please plan to join us either as a spectator or put in an entry or, or come volunteer with us. It's one of the best days you've ever had. Um, but thank you to the city of Lawrence and all of our community for their ongoing support. Not only does it allow us to put on one fantastic parade, the best one, I think, but also uh, raise much needed funds for our local children's charities, which I think a lot of people don't know. That's what really is our primary slash secondary goal as uh, the, the Lawrence St. Patrick's Day Committee. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'll go ahead and read the pro proclamation. Whereas in 2023, Lawrence St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee is celebrating its 60, 36th year as an organization in Lawrence. And whereas the Parade Committee encompasses four basic themes to honor Irish Americans and their contributions to America, to celebrate the legend and spirit of St. Patrick through a fun, good old-fashioned parade, to promote an atmosphere of benevolence, friendship, and cooperation through the parade and other associated events. And to support and exemplify the idea that charity and goodwill begins at home, benefiting your friends, neighbors, and the Lawrence community. And whereas this year's parade will be dedicated to the founders of the, of the Lawrence St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee, Bill Sullivan, Mike Rebich, Wes Cobbler, Cabler, Mike Jones, Mike Wilson, and Gene Shaughnessy. We also want to honor the military, Douglas County Law Enforcement, and Emergency Services. And whereas the Lawrence St. Patrick's Day Parade Committee is self-supporting and depends solely on the resources of interested businesses and citizens who donate their time, their talents, and good humor to sponsor worthwhile charitable causes on a yearly basis. Now, therefore, I, Lisa Larson, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim Friday, March 17th, 2023, as the 36th Annual St. Patrick's Day Parade. And I want to thank the citizens of Lawrence for supporting the parade. Committee's uh, chari charity fundraising uh, fundraisers during the months of February and March. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we're on to item C. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, a D. Public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to the issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Is there any general public comment? I do have copies for okay, thank city you. clerk. And Before I start that, I'll take those, but also understand the mic back over here. <coughs> And then that way you're better. And this can be raised if you need to. Okay, so thank you. Hi. Good evening. My name is Brent Bovey. I'm speaking on behalf of the Douglas County Republican Central Committee and really all citizens of our county. This is resolution number one of 2023. Whereas the cost of living, for food, utilities, fuel, and taxes 
for Douglas County families have risen sharply since 2020. And whereas every taxing entity, Douglas County Commission, Lawrence City Commission, Baldwin City Commission, Eudora City Commission, Lecompton City Commission, local school districts, etc., in Doug Douglas County raised property taxes for 2023. And whereas cities and governing authorities in Douglas County increased utility rates and fees charged in 2022, and whereas because of the tax and fee increases listed above, and along with the federal government's transfer of tens of millions of dollars to cities within Douglas County and to Douglas County, local governments are reporting higher tax collections and surpluses. And whereas residents of Douglas County face higher taxes and fees from local governing authorities, and these higher taxes and fees are hurting the residents of, Doug of Douglas County, especially those on fixed incomes. Now, therefore, we, the Douglas County Republican Central Committee, hereby declare, number one, the taxes and fees being imposed upon the residents of Douglas County represent a lack of concern by local government authorities for the financial pressures being felt by its residents. And number two, the local governing authorities should immediately review all operations to decrease spending. And number three, the local governing authorities must return to respecting the residents and not insist on placing their own budgets and projects above the needs of the residents. And number four, the local governing authorities must return all of the 2023 property tax increases above the amount of property tax collected in the prior year to Douglas County property taxpayers and present meaningful plans to reduce the tax and fee burden they impose on their residents, such as further reductions in the mill levy, debt reduction plans, staff reductions, and or ordinances limiting taxes and fees. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Other public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spies, and I started a protest back in July 2021 against the child mass mandates that lasted until March 2022. I'm here this evening to say I told you so about masks not being effective and masking not being based in science. I'm saying I told you so to all you crazy liberal fucks here in Lawrence who try to ruin my life over this. You didn't believe me about masks then or ever, so tonight I'm going to read a recent article published in your own mainstream media, the ultra-liberal New York Times, acknowledging that all you dumb shit liberals were wrong about masks and max mass policies and all us crazy far right extremist conspiracy theorists were right the articles titled the mass mandates did nothing will any lessons be learned by brett stevens it was published on february 21st the most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that masks make any difference. Full stop. Well, what about N95 masks as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, said Jefferson. What about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose masks 
mask mandates. They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. What about the utility of masks in conjunction with other preventative measures such as hand hygiene, physical distancing, or air filtration? There's no evidence that many of these things make any difference. The conclusions were based on 78 randomized controlled trials, six of them during the COVID pandemic. When it comes to the population level benefits of masking, the verdict is in. Mask mandates were a bust. Those skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mask mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. In a better world, it would behoove the latter group to acknowledge their error along with its considerable physical, psychological, pedagogical, and political costs. But the costs go, go deeper. When people say they trust the science, what they presumably, presumably mean is that science is rational, empirical, rigorous, receptive to new information, sensitive to competing concerns and risks. Also humble, transparent, open to criticism, honest about what it doesn't know, willing to admit error. The CDC's increasingly mindless adherence to its masking guidance is none of those things. Mask mandates were a fool's errand from the start. They did, abs they did almost nothing to advance safety itself. The Cochrane Report ought to be the final nail in this particular coffin. There's a final lesson. The last justification for masks is that even if they prove to be ineffective, they seem like a relatively low cost, intuitively effective way of doing something against the virus in the early days of the pandemic. But do something is not science, and it shouldn't have been public policy. And the people who had the courage to say as much deserve to be listened to, not treated with contempt. Contempt. They may never ever get the apology they deserve, but vindication ought to be enough. And we were right about masks not being effective, and we're right about the damage that the mask costs caused, and we're right about vaccines as well. Other general public comment? Hi there. Uh, first of all, I want to apologize. I walked out of the house without my um, speech, so if I ramble, um, forgive me. Um, I've been up here recently. Say your name, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Kevin Elliott. Thank you. Uh, I've been up here recently, and I've been very critical of a lot of things the city has done, and I think that criticism was well-deserved. Tonight, I have a different tone. Um, I think there's been some listening. I think there's been some reaction, and I want to give some kudos where kudos is deserved. <clears throat> this is regarding how the city uh, addresses homelessness in our community. There's been a lot of very positive steps lately. Uh, you've extended the support camp until the pallet homes are open. Good job. You've made a commitment and you have action in process to open the pallet homes. Good job. You, the mayor herself spoke uh, to, to the state on regards to their uh, attempt to outlaw homelessness. Good job. You've, um, the, a citizens committee brought forth a group of 10 recommendations. The city has responded to those and adopted many of those. Good job. I want to thank the city for doing a good job because people's lives depend on it. Things aren't perfect. There are things that still need to be looked at, things that still need to be done, but I'm encouraged that the direction is changing. Um, I, my only caution right now is that there's a lot of hope. Oh, and, and uh, you've, you're working to expand capacity at the Lawrence Community Shelter. Good job. My only caution is that there's a lot of emphasis being placed on the pallet homes as being the solution. It is one solution. In the fall, we will still have a need for camping. I don't want the city to pivot 180 degrees away from that. I want them to be prepared and not be caught off guard 
when the fall comes and not everybody will be served by the Lawrence Community Shelter and not everybody will be served by the Power Homes. Just keep your eyes open and keep your mind just open to that. But for me today, I really want to say thank you. Other general public comment? Hi, my name is Sue Herrick. I live here in Lawrence. I'm back tonight because the last three years have shown that our city commissioners sitting here tonight govern from the top down. Whatever dictates came from government, you followed in lockstep. Rather than being our voice in government, you were our dictators ignoring us every week. We were not represented by you as commissioners. You ignored your duty to represent. We know an apology is not going to come. By confronting you tonight, maybe rather than an apology, which would cost you nothing and earn you some respect, we will create, we will create a change in your perceptions by reminding you that, it, that we elected you to protect us from government to represent us as free people. You did the opposite the last three years. Whatever carrots and incentives the government, county, and state handed down to you, you accepted and then imposed on Lawrence, imposed those restrictions on Lawrence. They were draconian measures that ruined lives. Not one benefited anyone. Our children in particular were harmed. The factual evidence of the harm from your decisions to impose mask mandates, close businesses, all of that is unfolding daily. Does the term died unexpectedly sound familiar now? Who would imagine such a horror three years ago? From here on, remember us. Remember the people of Lawrence where the words free state are plastered all over this town. Protect us by re representing us in the face of lawless, unconstitutional actions and decisions by our go corrupt government. I hope that just a smidgen of the guilt for the harm you've done locally in the last three years will shake all of you into a clear new view of your responsibilities as elected officials. Thank you. Thank you. Other general public comment? Good evening, Chris Berger. It seems to be kind of thematic this evening. Uh, and I'd like to also address something I talked about over a year ago as new commissioners were coming on, and that is your role representing us. I'm still a little bit taken aback each time that I look at an agenda item and I see the memos that come from the city, because the memo always has a fiscal impact in it. And the only fiscal impact you seem to consider is the fiscal impact to the city. There's never a discussion about the fiscal impact to the citizens, to the taxpayers, to the voters. And I understood there might be a change in that over the last year, but there hasn't been. And since we really don't have a meaningful access to the city, our access is through you. But there is some truth to what I'm hearing that you seem to tell us how it is to be, as opposed to you telling the city how it will be. So I want to ask you again, if you would please maybe break a little bit of that training that the city puts you through, 
to be their advocates, to be their representative to us, and to be their, their boot uh, to the citizenry, to maybe be a little bit more emphatic, uh, and instead realized we can only work through you in any meaningful way, and that you would please at least consider fiscal impacts on us and not just the city. Thank you. This is Jeremy Rothkuschel, uh, Commission. I first want to address and make general public comment on something that happened in the last city commission meeting that is, won't be reflected on the minutes record. And that is that it was uh, asserted by Commissioner Sellers, I believe, that Robert's rules of order had actually um, claimed that the minutes should only reflect the actions taken by a body and not what was said. Now, I have a $1 used book version from the dusty bookshelf of Robert's Rules of Order. If something has changed since this version printed in 1967, let me know. But on page uh, 81, it says, quote, in keeping the minutes, much depends upon the kind of meeting and whether the minutes are to be published. Under no circumstances, however, should the clerk criticize in the minutes, either favorably or otherwise, anything said or done in the meeting. If they are to be published, it is often of far more interest to know what was said by the leading speakers than to know what routine business was done and what resolutions adopted. In such cases, the duties of the secretary are arduous, and he, she, they should have at least one assistant. So I would uh, assert that the Roberts Rules of Orders, although it's not the binding law, and it should just be the base for what we consider in terms of our democratic obligations and our, our constitutional Republican uh, obligations here, it should at least be adhered to in terms of the general spirit that we've been pointing out, that when we don't actually have minutes that describe the controversies of the day, we don't actually have a real uh, record uh, minutes that went on. And then finally, I want to make comment on some general written public comment in relationship to, I want to agree with what I saw from uh, Stephen Watts saying that that not only it has, it's obvious that the, 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 the uh, quote-unquote oversight board, but the review board, the police review board has been defanged, but we need to have our own policy here where we train our peace officers to not try to overstep Fourth Amendment uh, obligations in terms of seeking IDs. I also want to say that I agree with the uh, sentiment put forth by Michael from Lawrence Accountability in terms of basically doing a direct citizen oversight of, the, of our Lawrence police by showing all of the complaints that have not been properly attended to, showing I'm, that the process has broken down and that we need a thank new you. ordinance. Thank you. Other general public comment? My name is Linda Campbell. I did not intend to speak but I, in the number of times that I've been here previously on issues, I have felt no respect. I will say tonight, this 
Atten the attention that you all are giving me is the first time when I've been here that I have felt full attention. I appreciate that and I hope that you are waking up to what's going on in this city. Other general public comment? I think it's awesome that the Boy Scouts are here tonight because those young men who learn a lot about what this country means are seeing tonight what it means for citizens to take control of their government. To address the woman who spoke before me, the reason they pay attention now is because there's another camera in the room that they can't hide from. I'm the contrary voice in the room. I'm the one that notices little things like a commissioner trying to talk to the mayor about possibly shutting down some public comment because he didn't like what was being said in front of the two young men that are here tonight. When that commissioner knows that that's not acceptable. I'm the one that's here to point out that you didn't get to your solutions on the homeless situation out of the kindness of your hearts or staff's hearts. Because that happened from citizens coming in here night after night after night and pummeling those people up on that dais with concerns and calling them out for failing to live up to the commitments that they've made. Now you've made a, no a number of new commitments and I hope you follow through with those. But the citizens are not the audience, as been said in here before. We're the basis of what you do. And as the man said before me about the tax situation, you guys are taking from us to fund our city, but who's watching what they're funding? I've pointed out art projects that are just exorbitant and make no sense, and a lot of the citizenry didn't think it was a very good idea either. And I'm going to spend my last minute on you, Ms. Shipley, because I just can't figure out what you think. Why you would, I don't know what game it is that you're engaging in by sending an email to public comment like that. If you have something to say, you own the dais, speak up. But if, as I said in that email, and the young men in the room need to understand that speech is sometimes vulgar and you can't stop it. As I said in that email that you so, I don't know why, published, if you're not gonna pay attention to the problems that we have and do something to try to fix them and do something different other than just high-fiving them, then you need to shut the fuck up. Other general public comment? Any general public comment from on Zoom? Jen Wolfley. Um, thank you. I apologize that I wasn't able to be there in person to provide this message. Um, 
As an advocate for the unhoused, I wanted to make sure that I provide as much acknowledgement to the positives as I do the negatives. When I asked the city to do better, I was asking the city to provide more care, more resources, more consideration, and more dignity to our unhoused neighbors. I was proud to see this week that the city was listening. And so I just wanted to again, make a point to acknowledge that. I appreciate that the city is extending the support site and opportunity for those that have no other place to go to be an approved camping space. I appreciate that the trailers, the hygiene trailers will be placed out there for individuals to be able to take care of just their basic hygiene needs of using the bathroom in a more sanitary, dignified manner and also being able to shower. I appreciate that additional staff has been added to that site to provide support. And I especially appreciate the fact that there's been more of a focus on making sure that that staff is trained. I appreciate the partnership with LCS and I appreciate the moving forward of the pallet shelter um, community. And I do also want to um, just recognize um, Commissioner Sellers, Mayor Larson, and also um, Brandon McGuire for being there in Topeka this past Thursday to um, speak against House Bill 2430, which was the plan to criminalize homelessness. So I do see you. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing better. I ask you to continue to do so and recognize that all of Lawrence's citizens deserve dignity, respect, care, and compassion. Thank you. Stephen Watts. Hi, thank you. Is the audio functioning? Yes. Excellent. I appreciate the opportunity. I want to draw your attention to the email that I sent in to the town commission for tonight's meeting with respect to the reimagination of policing in our community. This is an ongoing daily type of operation as far as I'm concerned in terms of thinking about how we can do things differently here in Lawrence. My idea of reimagining policing centers around a nonviolent approach instead of a military approach where we have goons walking around our streets wearing all manner of nonsense. The, the time will come when these guys are all going to be carrying hand grenades. It's coming. It is coming. So in the email that I sent most recently, it talks about the reality that the police do not need to demand identification from people just to walk up to them. It's kind of like the idea of uh, stop and search or stop and frisk. You know, back in the old days, okay, the obtainment of information and running through a single database might have been okay. It's not anymore because there are so many databases that can be accessed and looked at. Our idea of reimagining policing means to have guardians in our community helping people and not going about demanding things from them. There is a way that the town commission can organize the police force such that we just change the way we go about doing business. It's not hard. Instead of doing it the way we've always done it, Let's try to really underscore the rights that have been guaranteed to us under the Constitution instead of playing games with words that Philadelphia lawyers have dreamed up. 
it's going to become even more onerous with respect to the metaverse. That is to say, the expansion of social medias and all of the other databases that are coming for us. We can control it here in the town if we want to do it. I get the instant. I, I get the inclination that there aren't a whole lot of people thinking about it because there's a whole lot of trust. I don't know. Let's try to control the police in our own community, and then we can look at controlling the police across America. Thanks. Any other general public comment for on Zoom? No, Mayor. All right, we'll bring it back up here. We'll move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on these items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak on an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items that a commissioner would like to pull off the consent agenda? No? Anybody in the audience that would like to have something pulled from the consent agenda? B2, what would have been D? Did you say B or E? B, E2. E2, it would have been D if it was there. I want to speak to a missing minutes. E2. It's not on there. It's not on there, okay. Well, E2 in general. Just E2. Okay, any other items pulled? Mayor, mm. I mean, there's three items under there. Need to pull one of them. So, to, I mean, it's approving, you're receiving those minutes. So if it's not related to those specific items, I would just, up to you whether you would want okay. to take public comment that's not related to those specific Yeah, they need to be related specifically to those items. So which would you like to pull, if any? Excuse me? B. E2B. Okay, anybody else in the audience like to have a pull something from the consent agenda? On Zoom? Nope. No, Mayor. Okay, we'll bring that back to the commission. So I would ask for a motion on the consent agenda with the exception of E2B. Move for approval of the consent agenda with the exception of E2B. Second. Got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes four to zero. E2B. Robert's Rules of Order has been something that some of the citizens have been looking into. And uh, one of the rules of order that it talks about is quorum and what happens when there's not a quorum. When there's not a quorum available for a meeting, you can still meet, you just can't take binding action, you can discuss things, but you, you just can't take votes because there's no quorum to take a vote. You're missing minutes that would have been reported tonight from a meeting that was canceled. And I think maybe, maybe we can assign it to the Planning Commission to plan better. But the Community Police Review Board minutes should be here. Mr. Irving, we're talking about the Planning Commission meetings, well, me meeting minutes? I understand. That's what we, that's what we need to talk about. here if the meeting would have happened. Yeah. Any public comment on this item? The commissioners, the commissioners, I forgot to ask. Nope. Nope. Okay. Any public comment from Zoom? No, Mayor. 
Okay, we'll bring it back up. This is just receiving, so we don't need to take any action, correct? That's right. Okay. All right. Move on to the work session. The work session provides an opportunity for the City Commission to discuss items in greater detail. The Commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Members of the public wishing to speak on a work session item will be limited to three minutes for comments. We have one item which is to receive the strategic plan update from the Connected City Outcome Team and Efficient and Effective Commitment Team. Good evening, Mayor. Good evening, Commissioners, staff. Give me just a second here. I am a technologist in my other job, not my non-speaking job, so just got to share my screen. You could state your name, please. I'm sorry, Mayor Brian Thomas, Interim Technology Director. see that yes yep all right thank you all right we're settled in let's have some fun so when I first brought this forward to the executive team for review um, it was 49 slides and after we were done it was I got some compliments on it Craig said two things you've got two options you can be brief or you can be funny. <laughs> I'll be out of here in two minutes. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll just quickly review uh, some of the, there's one particular KPI that we want to review tonight, and I'll kind of step through that. We had some ongoing plans around the technology operations, but also some uh, incidents that happened last year, one in particular with the power outage, so we'll get into that. Again, Connected City, we've all uh, reviewed the strategic plan. We've had many work sessions up here before. So again, I'm just going to get right to the chase. The performance indicator that I'm going to be focusing on tonight out of the Connected City is CC4. And I'll drill in even deeper, and we're going to focus on some IT stuff. We don't talk a lot about IT, but there's a lot of good work going on behind the scenes. So the things that were established around technology, obviously this, if we go back a screen, we, we, talk, we touch on the different components of CC4 across the city, not just technology. As you can see here, we've highlighted some of the tech work that was uh, looked at as far as uh, our, our KPIs. Obviously, we're going to establish a technology strategy, which we've done that last year. Uh, Michael Aldridge was here, and we, we worked on that as a, a tactical level, and then we created an IT governance council, which has helped guide our work. Uh, we have an asset management framework that we established uh, to ensure that we are refreshing our infrastructure equipment on a regular basis. Uh, as you know, we've had some aging infrastructure across the city, and that's one of the things that we wanted to address, but also to, to stay in line with some of the latest standards to prevent us from uh, cyber attack, whether it's local or, or a uh, foreign actor state state actor so 
We reported on this last year, Mayor, if you remember, uh, we reported on a 17, we were trying to hit an 80 or above. And, uh, and I'll get into that in just a second. And I, I did get questions on that. I know Michael got questions last year. And, and I can step through that. As you know, about a year ago, we had a catastrophic disaster. We actually lost uh, a circuit, a power circuit to this building. Uh, Evergy had to come in and, and address that. So to make a long story short, on top of that, we had a generator failure. So we were out with, without technology across the city, not just here at City Hall. So to me, that was catastrophic. It was a long 24 hours. Believe me, I didn't sleep. But um, we proposed something to the city manager where we came forward and presented something in the budget last year at the last, I'd say the last minute, the timing was impeccable, but you were able to approve some dollars that we were able to build out a secondary site for our uh, infrastructure and our tier one systems. And I'll talk about those in just a second. Part of the CIP that was approved a year and a half ago as well was to replace some of the equipment that was aged, uh, and that is in part of our uh, operational plan and technology to replace some of that age infrastructure. So here's the good news. We're working very hard with the team now to get this done. We have that technology replacement our first year in the works, replacing some very old, old equipment. We've, with the uh, funding that you approved last year, we've moved into a disaster recovery site across town where we'll be able to recover those systems that I talked about, tier one, tier zero. We're also engaging in our annual tabletop exercises as far as disaster recovery. And that includes our uh, incident response plan, which there's a component of cybersecurity. Uh, we won't get into those details here, but we're looking at a very robust plan and we've got a team engaged on that. So we are looking to have the failover site work completed by June 1st of this year. And then our infrastructure recovery uh, replacement and recovery is is well underway and we'll provide regular updates on that so you may ask real quick what a tier one is or a tier zero tier zero I've out, outlined it right here is just your critical infrastructure circuits things that that application layer run on that's recoverable and I'll talk about a recovery time objective here in a second but then we went through the IT governance council and stepped through of the 300 applications that we run here at the city, we have decided the tier one are these particular uh, applications and systems that we cannot live without. They're critical to our business functions. And so that was vetted through a representative of each department essentially in the IT Governance Council. So now we've solidified a tier one uh, list of systems that we will absolutely recover during an outage. So you might ask, well, what is that RTO or recovery time objective? For anything that's non-catastrophic, that means someone cut a fiber optic cable or, or that sort of thing, we have a recovery time of two hours. Now, if an F5 tornado rips through the city, that's a different story, and we're looking at an RTO of about 48 hours. And I will stand here with questions. I went from 49 slides down to eight. <laughs> So that incident that happened um, last May, did we lose data? We did not. Did not? We did not. We just didn't have the power to keep those systems alive. Okay. But uh, we, we had a pretty good uh, incident response to that. We were able to bring up some 
some tier one systems, not all of them, uh, in a fairly timely fashion, but we still, throughout the city, uh, other departments like fire and police were impacted as well. So we, we did a lessons learned, learned a lot from that, brought forth some budgetary items that were approved by the commission last, I think it was la whenever it was approved last year. But uh, last minute, yeah. we're in great shape, we're excited, the team's excited. We actually get to do some really, we get to roll up our sleeves and, and set up a secondary site we'll, we'll be able to fail over to. So very excited. So did we not lose data because we had really good backup systems or it wasn't a data loss type? Correct, not a data loss, we just lost a loss of power. So we did have backups. Okay. Uh, anything that was lost, we were able to recover. Um, it was more of there's no power to power all the systems. Okay. Questions? Brian, we recently had, um, emailed a little bit about um, broadband and, and the federal and state government working on broadband. Can you give us a quick update on what we're looking to try to get more broadband in the city, especially for the underserved population? Absolutely. That's a great question, Commissioner. Thank you. Uh, I've actually worked with uh, several providers in the area, both fiber optic, uh, broadband areas, uh, some of the largest providers. And I've also talked to uh, representative state government uh, and federal government. They, there is uh, some funding that will be coming down, trickling down to the states. I think Kansas represents 1%, so we'll get a little bit of money of that. I do have access to, we all do have an access to an FCC broadband map, so you can actually drill into your household or a business. and it, basically tells you what the city and the area has. We also had a report, an assessment done about a year ago. Uh, Michael has shared, has shared that with the management team. Uh, essentially, we would like to, uh, and we're working with a partner now, to bring uh, a public-private partnership that would allow us to bring fiber in here and give uh, fiber, broadband, high-speed access to everybody in the community, uh, not just businesses and not just nice neighborhoods, but everybody, especially the underserved. And so we do have a plan. Uh, there's been a lot of work done on that actually in the last couple of months. So um, yeah, Thank uh, you. any other questions I'm, I'm happy to answer. Other questions? No, it's, Commissioner uh, Finker and I beat, beat me to that when I was. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your work on this. Yeah, very uh, important work. Wouldn't mind thank seeing you. the other you 38 slides. You're welcome. If you, if you, do you have the sli other slides <laughs> that you could just see this? I would be interested <laughs> in just looking at them. She's just asking. Sunday reading. <laughs> I'm fine. No, I'm serious. I'd, I'd like to read those. Sure, absolutely. I, I can, any follow-up, Craig. Okay. I'd be happy to submit those. Okay. If there are no other questions, then... Uh, Someone took over my screen, so. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Public Thank comment? You. Public comment. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any public comment on, on this item? Any public comment from Zoom? No, Mayor. All right. We'll bring it back to the commission. We don't have to take an action on this. So we will move on to our regular agenda item. Item number one is to receive presentation from Virchow. Kraus regard, regarding proposed home investment partnerships program American Rescue Plan home ARP allocation planned. Sorry if I did not get that name very, very well. That's all right. Uh, good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, I'm Brad Carr. I'm the Community Development Analyst in the Housing Initiatives Division. Hey, and uh, this evening, we'll be bringing you a presentation from Virchow, Krauss & Company, which were our consultants on this project. Um, they'll be presenting to you a draft allocation plan 
for the city's home investment partnerships American Rescue Plan. Uh, we'll shorten that down to home ARP funding. Um, I'll let the consultants explain the requirements of all the processes that were needed in order to be able to use these funds, um, including public participation, um, a needs assessment, uh, gap analysis, and ultimately a draft of the uh, development of that allocation plan. Um, the allocation plan was available for public comments starting on February 10th and ran through February 24th. And also a public hearing on the draft plan was held on the February 13th Affordable Housing Advisory Board meeting. Um, the city is required to have an allocation plan submitted to HUD by March 31st of this year. Um, we also have several other staff members on tonight um, to answer any questions if needed. And with that, I'll turn it over to Monique Kasten from Virchow Krauss for the presentation. Good evening, everyone. Brad, thank you for the introduction. As Brad mentioned, my name is Monique Kasten. I am a consulting manager and also the project for this engagement with Virchow Krauss. Additionally, on the line, I have our subcontractor by the name of Baron Bell as well, who will be joining me today as we present on the home ARP allocation plan draft as well. So if you provide me with one moment, I will share my screen. Um, if I'm allowed, it says host is able participant screen sharing with the presentation. Um, and once I'm able to share, I can get us started. Um, while I'm waiting, Baron, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Evening, everyone. My name is Baron Bell, as Monique uh, mentioned. I have a firm, Community Development Experts. I've been providing housing and community development to uh, state, local governments, and city governments for the past 25 years, specializing in housing and urban development, federal housing and community development program funds. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to present our findings here tonight. Thank you, Baron. Okay. All right. So overview of the home ARP program. The home investment partnerships program in general provides grants to state and local governments to create overall affordable housing for low income households. Now with the American Rescue Plan that was a result of the coronavirus pandemic, the American Rescue Plan has allocated approximately $5 billion to assist individuals or households that are homeless, at risk of becoming homeless, and several other vulnerable populations by providing this funding to assist with housing, rental assistance, supportive services, and also congregate development as well to reduce homelessness and also increase housing stability across the country. All states and what HUD defines as local participating jurisdictions, which the city of Lawrence is a local participating jurisdiction that actually qualified to receive an annual home program allocation in fiscal year 2021, are also eligible to receive this new um, one-time special home ARP grant. So home ARP is really a combination of the traditional home investment partnership program by HUD in addition to the American Rescue Plan Act and the funding that came available as relates to affordable housing. So for the city of Lawrence, the actual allocation that Lawrence is eligible to receive as a participating jurisdiction is $1,641,000, 1641000 
sum it up, my apologies, 1.6 million um, in funding, a little over 1.6 million. So who's eligible? Who are ultimately the eligible beneficiaries of the funding and activities that will be funded? Eligible populations include those that are homeless, at risk of becoming homeless, those that are fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence, um, experiencing dating violence, sexual assault, stalking, human trafficking, any additional populations where if provided with supportive services or assistance will ultimately help them prevent them from becoming homeless, and veterans and their families that include a veteran that meets any one of the prior criteria that I just mentioned. Some of the eligible activities or all of the eligible activities include the production or preservation of affordable housing, tenant-based rental assistance, supportive services, and also purchasing and the development of non-congregate shelter. An example of some of those supportive services include case management, um, education, mental health, outreach services, housing search, life skills training, um, substance abuse treatment, transportation, legal services, and employment assistance and job training as well. So this is not a, an exhaustive list. These are just some examples of supportive services that can be considered eligible activities. So what participating jurisdictions had to complete in order to receive this funding allocation is what HUD is calling an allocation plan. The allocation plan is designed to describe the proposed activities that a participating jurisdiction will intend on taking and how they will plan on distributing those funds to address the needs of the qualifying populations that I mentioned previously. So to receive the balance of those home ARP funds, what a jurisdiction can do, they can receive 5% of their overall allocation for program administrative costs and planning activities. But in order to receive the remaining balance of the funds, participating jurisdictions, i.e. City of Lawrence, are required to submit a home ARP allocation plan as an amendment to their fiscal year 2021 annual action plan for HUD to review and accept. So without submitting an actual allocation plan, the city of Lawrence will not be able to be eligible to receive this formula allocation from the federal government. All allocation plans, as Brad mentioned earlier, are actually due to HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, by March 31st, 2023. So what's included within the allocation plan? What you see on the screen today are several of the required elements to make up an allocation plan for HUD. It included consultation, public participation, complete, completing a needs assessment and gap analysis, identifying home ARP activities, home ARP production housing goals, preferences, and also refinancing guidelines. Speaking about the consultation, the consultation was meant specifically for stakeholder agencies throughout the city of Lawrence. So those agencies um, represented the housing authority, other government agencies, nonprofits that serve the eligible populations as well. So we hosted three virtual meetings for stakeholder agencies in January. 
A total of 43 agencies were invited to participate in the virtual focus group sessions. And they also had the opportunity to share um, the invitation with other agencies as they saw fit as well. Of the 43 agencies that were invited to participate, 24 individuals representing 18 agencies participated in at least one focus group. Based on the consultation that we had with um, stakeholder agencies who also received an electronic survey as well, so that if they were unable to participate in a virtual focus group, or if for whatever reason they did not receive an invitation, they also had an opportunity to complete um, electronic surveys. Based on the feedback that we received, the greatest area of need that was identified as a potential use of the home ARP funds was the construction of new affordable rental housing and more specifically transitional housing with supportive services. Also to note, based on the feedback that we received from stakeholder agencies through consultation was that um, non-Congress shelter and supportive services for tenants, including a legal representation of pilot program was also of interest as well. In addition to consultation with stakeholder agencies per HUD, participating jurisdictions are also required to elicit public participation from members of the community as well, citizens of the community. So in order to collect that feedback, we created and um, distributed electronic surveys and also paper version of surveys as well, hard copies made available to Lawrence and Douglas County residents. And we received 918 responses, which was tremendous. Throughout the survey, um, several questions were asked. When asked to actually rank the potential uses of home ARP funding, which is one of the main things that we were looking to accomplish, 38.5% of responses included or identified construction of new affordable rental housing units as their highest priority. So what you see, um, which I understand is probably hard to read on the screen, but the, the um, bar in blue represents that first choice. Um, second choice came in as um, um, housing vouchers and also listing additional supportive services as well for people experiencing homelessness. When asked about the single greatest housing need in the community, 48% of respondents identified affordable rental housing units as the single greatest housing need in the community. What came in second, close second, was transitional housing with supportive services, and third, non-congregate emergency shelter. When asked what respondents believe to be the most needed service for individuals that are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless, 492 respondents identified mental health services specifically. That mental health service, again, falls under supportive services. What came in second after mental health services, which you see is the overwhelming need based on the, the bar graph. But what came in second was, um, came in as other. So I'm just going to go to third, which was employment-related services as well. Um, before we go into the point in time information and the homeless shelter and housing needs, I do want to speak a little bit more about public participation and some of the additional outreach efforts that were made. So in addition to 
preparing an electronic sur survey and hard copy survey in English and Spanish. What we also did to um, collect additional feedback, we had a virtual meeting with case managers of various agencies that worked directly with the populations in which we were hoping to target. We wanted to take that initiative to provide um, an overview of what the program was, um, the home ARP program, and what we were looking to accomplish with staff of agencies that work directly with the populations that we serve. Uh, we understand that not everyone will be comfortable uh, just speaking with a stranger to ask questions about what such a survey would be or what this initiative is. And we also understand that some people might need additional support with completing such a survey, such a request. So we took the initiative to speak with the staff that work directly with the clients in which we were hoping to reach as well, to provide them with education in terms of how to complete the survey, how to access the survey, and support along the way. Um, I will turn it over to you, Baron, um, and just let me know when you are ready for me to uh, move the slides forward. Yes, you can move. Oh, that's right. We're going to point in time survey. Thank you, Monique. So what we do as a part of this document is that we have to estimate the uh, number of persons and families who are homeless. Now, the way that's done in a continuum of care program in January of each year, uh, what is known as a point in time survey. Now, because it's in January, a point in time survey can often undercount or underreport uh, the seriousness or the magnitude of homelessness because persons may be in a location where enumerators, those who are participating in the count, they just don't see individuals who are unsheltered homeless. Pretty much the sheltered homeless data is accurate, but also we were dealing with still in 2022 in January, uh, the pandemic. So less people were probably out in, in certain spaces. However, uh, the way this chart works, or this data works in the left part of the chart, those left extreme left column, those deal with the number of inventories of beds and units that are available on the point in time survey in January. So for emergency shelter, there were 38 beds that were available to families in 18 units. And we had 30 beds 12 units of transitional housing. So emergency shelter gets people off the street immediately, but transitional housing generally provides up to two years, 24 months of housing assistance to get people into a more permanent housing solution. For our permanent supportive housing, we had 16 beds uh, and four units being supported for families with permanent supportive housing. And then there was some other permanent supportive housing that did, uh, other permanent housing that didn't have supports. We had four units, uh, four beds being assisted for families in one unit. Adults only is the next part of that column. So adults only uh, generally are a single beds and not housing full housing units. So on the point of time for our emergency shelters, we had 86 beds available for adults. We had nine uh, transitional housing beds, which is not a whole lot available for adults. Permanent supportive housing, we had 34 beds. And then other permanent housing, we had uh, only two beds. The number of veterans that we had that were homeless on a point-in-time survey, again, I reiterate, this is only on a point-in-time count in January. We had 16 veterans that were uh, taking advantage of permanent supportive housing by way of some form of a housing assistance of probably 
be a, a vast voucher. Now, in the middle of this chart, at the bottom, we deal with the homeless population. And so the general thing is to try to get a, an estimate to, to gauge the number of homeless persons in contrast, contradistinction to the, or, or cross-reference to the number of units available. So for our homelessness, we had 58 families, 58 families that were sheltered during the point in time survey. Then we had 23 adults only with no children involved. And we had 16 vets that were participating in a sheltered homeless situation. And victims of domestic violence, we had 40. So just note that the victim of domestic violence at 40 households, that is pretty um, high considering with families were 58 and adults, 23. So to have 40 victims of domestic violence, that is a significant indication of the data. Now, in terms of our unsheltered homeless, fortunately, we only have four families that were reported as uh, unsheltered homeless in January in that point in time survey count. And we had 55 adults who were also homeless. Uh, and were unsheltered during the night of the point in time survey. So looking at the data itself, again, in January, it does not show a great contrast between the current inventory and the homeless population. However, we also looked at other data that was available to us uh, by the county. And one of those uh, data sources or studies rather was recently completed in May of 2022. Uh, the Douglas County Homelessness Report. And in that particular report, it estimated that 150 individuals could break out of homelessness if supportive housing was available. And this report also uh, found that uh, homeless individuals and families experiencing homelessness, if there were 115 permanent supportive housing units available, it could address the need of families who experience homelessness. So at the bottom of this chart, you, you can't uh, see this well, we have a gap, and our gap was filled in, not necessarily by the point-in-time survey. The point-in-time survey is just something that we use for consideration, but we looked at the uh, study that was done for Douglas County by the Corporation for Supportive Housing to come up with a need of 115 uh, units for families and individuals and 150 uh, beds, at least, uh, for adults. So that's how we came up with the gap analysis. Okay, Monique, we can go to the next uh, slide, please. Now this next slide or this next table deals with a slightly different population. So in addition to serving people who are homeless with the ARP funds and those who are at risk of homelessness, we also can serve individuals who are considered at greatest risk of housing instability. To do that, HUD has data specially calculated by the Census Bureau using the American Community Survey data. And this dirt data is based upon a sample of a five-year estimate, which is data that we use in our study here. And so in terms of the current inventory, 26,297 rental units available in the county. Now, the rental units who were that were affordable to households at 30% of area median income there were only 965 units estimated as being affordable. Running affordable, the median income of 5,590 units. So if we go to the level of need or the number of households, we see, first of all, at zero to 30% of median income, there were 4,205 
households that had severe housing problems. Now, severe housing problem means that uh, a household has lacks living in a, a unit that has uh, lacking plumbing or kitchen facility. And what we find most often with severe, uh, experiencing severe housing problems, more than 1.5 persons per room and paying more than 50% of a monthly income towards housing costs. So we had 4,205 um, households at zero to 30% of the median who had that particular uh, experience, that difficulty. At the zero to 30, 50, uh, the zero to 50% range, we had 1,485 um, households who had severe cost burden. So with that population group, it seems that there were units available for folks at 50% uh, at 30 to 50% and below median. So we estimated that the gap for affordable rental units being 3,250. Now, when we say gap, again, we're, we're, it's not saying that only 3,000 units are needed to improve the situation in terms of housing, but really trying to address those persons who might be homeless or at greatest risk of housing instability if something is not done to bring more units online in an inventory. Now, also to give just a little perspective on what we're talking about with those income ranges. So for a, a one household for Lawrence in the fiscal year 2022, the median income would be 66,166. Contrast to that, if an extremely low family compared to that uh, household of one, 66,166 is the median, 30% of that is $19,850 annually. That's an extremely low income household. And at that income level, these homes, these are families will struggle to find affordable housing. At the 50% uh, range, that annual income for a family of one or household of one is $33,100. So what this data really shows is that the uh, great need in terms of numbers it's a great need for affordable housing for persons who could afford housing, but they just need some assistance to, you know, find units that have a rent, which they can afford. Now, the studies also found one other very significant thing during the uh, study, and that is this. Women who experience homelessness or at, uh, are threatened with homelessness, they reported when questioned in this study that they have an additional burden, if you will, because generally women will have children with them and they're very concerned about finding uh, protection, protect, protection for themselves and also physical protection for their children. So these other studies show, in addition to the numbers that we're showing here, uh, the, the, the issue, the burden, the uh, problem of homelessness is uh, greater for women, women with children in particular, than others in the population group. Monique? Dan, you want me to cover? You want to? I can cover this. Yes, the, uh, the allocation funding table? Yeah, yeah, I can cover that. So, what we have proposed here in our allocation funding uh, table, we see here. And Monique, is it larger on your screen? I can't see it on my screen here. Do you have it on your computer? Because I don't. <laughs> yes, I, I'll cover it. Um, so for the allocation of funding, what has been proposed at this particular time is to allocate um, 
the majority of the funding towards the development of affordable rental housing. And that is based on the data that we collected from the surveys from the first and foremost, the members of the community, what the citizens have said, in addition to our consultation efforts with stakeholders as well, and analyzing the data from the needs assessment and gap analysis. In addition to that, the participating jurisdictions are allowed to have up to 15% of the overall allocation dedicated towards administrative and planning activities throughout the duration of the funding, which brings us to the total of $1,641,383. So again, this is the proposed um, allocation of the funding for the City of Lawrence based on the data that was received. The overall thought process here was knowing that there's such a high need and demand for affordable rental housing to place as much funding as possible towards the development of that affordable rental housing. Baron, was there anything else that you wanted to add to that? Uh, one thing to add to that, and, and I kind of mentioned this within this uh, program, there's two things that you, a jurisdiction can do. You can limit funding to particular qualifying populations. Again, the qualifying populations are persons who are homeless, uh, persons who are fleeing domestic violence, persons who are at risk of homelessness, and those who are at greatest risk of housing instability. And then within those qualifying populations, you can call out a limitation or preference for other groups such as the chronically homeless, uh, uh, families with children, and uh, persons that are fleeing domestic violence, for example, or veterans also, for an example. So with the funds that will be allocated under this plan, you have to serve every group. And so what we did, we did come up with a, a, a limitation for some of the affordable units to uh, women with children and those fleeing domestic violence, and then other units would be available for the population at large. So that is one of the significant uh, findings that we uh, developed in terms of the allocation uh, plan. So speaking more about the production of housing goals. Oh, Baron, this is your slide. My apologies. Oh, okay, so yeah, so in terms of the, the affordable housing uh, production goals, the goals for production can uh, vary depending upon the subsidy. So what we uh, estimated between a subsidy, maybe between 20 and 40% uh, for each unit that we can uh, bring online an additional 19 to uh, 38 units of, of housing. And so that's what we uh, estimate currently for the production of uh, units. Monique. And I just mentioned the preferences for households with children, single females, and chronically homeless individuals and their families will receive the uh, preferences for uh, first choice to receive as housing assistance by funds and units made available with funds from the ARP uh, allocation. Um, so upcoming important dates. Public hearing will be March 13th. I think that's actually a typo. Um, my apologies. But the final city commission review of the home ARP draft allocation plan will be March 21st. The deadline for submission to HUD will be March 31st, as I mentioned um, previously. Um, back 
concludes our presentation for the evening. Um, and we have contact information here as well, which you can also uh, receive from um, our contacts at the City of Lawrence. But overall, thank you this evening for the opportunity to share the great work that we've done with the City of Lawrence staff. It's been a pleasure. Um, we've had some great conversation and as a whole, we are all collectively passion, passionate about the great use of this funding to really maximize how the funding can be used to serve the community as a whole. So thank you and um, we will open it up for questions. Any questions? I was uh, just curious, the, the process after the allocation plan, I mean, assuming everyone has to submit theirs on March 31st, um, how long do we think till the feds like approve it? I mean, do they have to approve it or what, what's the next step after that? Yes, yeah, so how that works is that the federal government HUD, they have 45 days to approve plans that have been submitted to them. The regulations say if you don't hear from HUD within a 45 day period, then a plan is deemed automatically approved. And these funds, by the way, along the line of your question, they must be spent by uh, September 30 of 2030. And to add to that, um, what we have seen, and I have sat on technical assistance calls with HUD as well and asked that exact same question, Brad, myself to see what I would hear. And the answer was kind of shaky. Um, it seems as if possibly different um, regional offices may have a different process. Um, we have worked with one city that submitted their plan in September of 2022 and have not heard back. Uh, so I reminded them that based on exactly what Baron just mentioned within the HUD implementation notice for the home ARP plan, if after 45 days you have not heard from um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development in terms of accepting the plan, then it is technically deemed accepted. Great question. I guess the, thank you for that. Um, maybe this is a question for Brad. Um, then what's the next step internally for the city? How, what's the plan to consider how to allocate mm -hmm. those funds or do requests for proposals or what kind of, what's the next step internally after it's approved? Sure, yeah, this is uh, Brad Carr, Community Development Analyst. I just wanna mention real quick on one of those last slides that it stated that it would, this matter would be back for you uh, for final approval on March 21st, but we've actually kind of advanced that timeline and we're gonna go next week on uh, March 14th instead, um, just so that we can incorporate any final comments that we receive from you or the public and still meet that deadline uh, of March 31st that HUD has set. Um, but what we're envisioning in the future after HUD um, accepts our plan is that we would develop an RFP um, looking for somebody uh, to develop units um, and we'll specify in that uh, scope of work that uh, depending on the size and the number of units, uh, there would be that varying subsidy that the consultants talked about between 20 and 40%. And we're hoping that we can get responses back that um, those subsidies amounts would lead to the production between that 19 and 38 units. Um, also uh, covered in that scope of work is also gonna have to be a plan of um, how whoever builds these are gonna maintain these. Um, HUD does require um, uh, either the, the creation of or the description of um, an operating uh, pot of money that the 
uh, company or nonprofit would have to have in order to maintain uh, these units. Um, also, there are requirements for monitoring. And for a rental unit, standard home rental unit is uh, 20 years. That unit has to be monitored. Um, Baron, I don't know if for this one, did they reduce that down to 15 years for this home? Mark? That's correct, Brad. Regardless of funding for ARP, time uh, monitored for the agreement period, affordability period is 15 years, 15 yes. years. So uh, not only does the agency, whoever, you know, the city selects for this have to be able to develop these and run these, um, it's, it's going to be an ongoing commitment of at least 15 years that the city will also be involved in that monitoring of yearly inspections of the units. Um, yearly recertifications of the income of each of the units and to make sure that they're meeting uh, the HUD prescribed home uh, in rent limits uh, that change every year. And so uh, we're hoping that we will get enough responses from that RFP um, to be able to you know, move forward with that. As Baron said, we have until 2030 to have the uh, funds spent. So if we don't get an uh, RFP back that we feel comfortable with, or if at that time something has changed in our community and we would like to pivot and instead of building uh, these affordable units, now suddenly we've determined that maybe we need a non-congregate shelter. Um, we do have the opportunity uh, to create a substantial amendment to that allocation plan. Um, HUD would once again have to uh, accept that, but that is um, an option that if needed, we couldn't, if we don't find anybody to develop the rental units for us, then we could um, go that route. One thing to one thing to understand briefly or uh, quickly at 30 extremely low income that's 30 percent and very low income at 50 percent the uh, revenues the rent re revenues will not be as high so because of that HUD does allow for 30 percent of these units to be rented out to households at higher incomes and the limit of that is the income limit but that is 80 percent of the median. So 30% of all home assisted units can be rented out to um, households at 80% of, of the median. And that's to get, you know, addition, some additional revenues from the uh, uh, units, from the rents. Any more questions? Uh, yeah, just a quick one. And uh, uh, the public hearing uh, I saw on March 13th, that was for Ahab, right? Through Ahab? Yes, yes, that, that slide okay. actually said February 13th. Sorry about that, but okay. uh, yeah, the public hearing was held at the Affordable Housing Advisory uh, Board's meeting on February 13th. Um, and I know uh, that a portion of it is devoted towards planning um, uh, the, the funding there. Is it just for the project itself or can we, I, I just noticed that we have such a big gap that is there any room to move forward with it at, at all as well? In terms of planning, you know, um, just figuring out uh, if, you know, what, what might be the next step, kind of piggybacking on what Commissioner Finkelbeck said. Yeah, sure. Um, definitely. Um, as Monique said in the slides that um, HUD has advanced 5% of the funds for us to begin our planning activities. Um, and then we won't be able, we would not be able to receive the balance of that until they accept our allocation plan. Um, part of that administration amount, that 15%, um, we do have to keep in mind that long term, 15 years, we're going to have uh, city involvement 
in that day-to-day year-to-year monitoring of those programs. So that will be a significant cost that we have to calculate out as part of our planning process um, to determine how much um, of that admin, you know, we might be able to access or uh, not have to access and maybe be able to put that money into units instead. Okay. I have a couple of questions on the point in time data. Is that data collected from 2023, January, or 2022? I might have missed that. 2022, the point in time data for 23 wasn't available to us when we were uh, calculating or putting that data together in a chart, and that data is still being computed, so it probably won't be available for another two or three months now. So that's 2022 point in time survey data. And to stress that those, those surveys oftentimes undercount or underrepresent uh, the number of persons who are actually homeless. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I now have a couple of questions on the slide that it says on page 13 of 84 of our of our package called homeless shelter and housing needs. Could you help me understand what the meaning is of some of these items, uh, such as sheltered homeless versus unsheltered homeless? Um, what's the difference between those two? So sheltered home, so persons who reside in an emergency facility, which generally provides housing for a limited period of 60 days, and those who are in a uh, housing for a 24-month period, those persons are still considered homeless, but they are sheltered homeless, as opposed to unsheltered are persons who on the point in time survey or or after that or else or any time you know within a year are living in a place that's not fit for human habitation such as an automobile uh in a vacant abandoned building and the like or out in the park that's what the unsheltered homeless definition is okay thank you now how does that differ from what is called emergency shelter up at the top of that column yeah, again, emergency shelter generally is a facility that takes persons, you know, off the streets immediately, but they're going to stay there sometimes no more than uh, 60 days within a six-month period under the HUD programs. With transitional houses, they can stay there for a 24-month period. And the idea is you're providing persons with certain supportive services over the two-year period. Hopefully, they can get on a voucher or, you know, find permanent housing elsewhere. So that's the difference there. Emergency shelter does not provide uh, shelter for a you know two year period. Okay, so is the the numbers we see for emergency emergency shelter would those still be considered homeless homeless folks? Yes, they're ho- even if they're in emergency shelter or transitional, they're still considered homeless because those okay. units are not permanent. Okay, all right. Thank you very much. That was yes. all I had. Mm-hmm. Sure. Any other questions? Nope. Then we'll open it up for public comment. Public comment on this item. Hi, Kevin Elliott. Um, first of all, I forgot to say earlier, and this is connected to this. Good job on uh, on um, prohibit prohibiting uh, income discrimination because that's directly effect related to this. Um, this this is another really really good step. The only thing that hurts my heart about this, and they they said it very clearly several times, they know they've undercounted. Mm-hmm. I, I can name twice as many 
people that I've served that then then have been counted here. Um, the only comment that I want to give that I'd like the the advice I'd like to give the commission is so far you've relied very heavily on Bert Nash to be one of your main community partner on dealing with this. Um, they've done an adequate job. There are a lot more organizations and agencies. I sent you a list of community organizations and agencies that should help distribute the work with the city. And I'd, I'd like to encourage you to follow up on that list and see if you can pull more people to the table, especially people that will increase equity, inclusion, and diversity. The other thing I just want to say is, and I think you know this, for every dollar you, you use to prevent someone becoming unhoused, you save $10 in, in services of people who are unhoused. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Margretta DeFries, and I am here representing Wood Creek Townhomes at 255 North Michigan Street. I submitted written comment to the agenda based on a, an article in the Lawrence Times um, yesterday. Uh, Margaret, is this on this specific item here? My, I was just going to say, I submitted public comment intending that it just be generic based on a, an article in the paper yesterday, okay. but it got attached to this item in the agenda. Oh, it did? It did. It did. And so that is why I waited until now because that is where it is in your okay. agenda. Okay. Sorry about that. So we attached it incorrectly. Absolutely. I just yeah, wanted okay. to do it in the order that you already have it. Okay. Thank you. I have lived at Wood Creek since 2010, and I've been on the Homeowners Association board for the past seven years, and I've been the president of the board for the last four. When I submitted the comment, it was in a uh, response to an article in the T Lawrence Times yesterday about the pallet village that is going to be built at 18th, near 18th and Haskell, and the potential of acquiring the Veritas school uh, property on North Michigan Street for a homeless shelter. I'm not going to read my response verbatim. I would like, I'm here to highlight some key points and add some feedback that I got from other owners in the complex after I sent them the letter that I submitted earlier today. Owners at Wood Creek are deeply concerned about the impact of having a homeless shelter across the street from our home especially if the school district closes Pinckney School, which I realize you have no control over, but is a relevant point. I had to work hard to convince many of my fellow homeowners of the value of having the Lawrence Loop constructed next to our property. But all of the people I've seen using the path recently on warm weather days will be much less attracted to the path if there's a homeless shelter right next to it. We've already experienced an uptick in questionable activity since the loop was completed. In fact, one owner told me today that he was recently threatened at knife point while using the path. This is especially going to be a consideration once the next section of the loop is built between North Michigan Street and Sandra Shaw Trail, which will complete the connection to downtown. Personally, I'm very excited about that, but it's relevant here because of the pathway from downtown to a potential shelter. Many of my fellow homeowners are adamantly opposed to the city's potential use of the Veritas property as any kind of shelter facility. It's not a in my backyard problem, but we have significant concerns beyond property values, such as the safety of the residents and property, 
parking, the easy access to the creek, and potentially also the lack of playground equipment. There's also a drug and alcohol problem, not to mention the police response times that are already per perceived to be very slow uh, among my home neighbors. Finally, I'm very concerned about the lack of a transparent public process when it's still possible to address our significant list of concerns. Veritas is zoned for use as a school. Time. Thank you, Margaret. I'm sorry. That's okay. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, my name is uh, Barry Shalinsky. And um, as you see, I'm wearing a button that says, save our schools. And um, yes, this is relevant to the topic. Um, as indicated, we have a serious lack of affordable housing in our community. And I would like to speak in favor of having uh, some set-asides in whatever is created and emphasis on creation of housing that is family-friendly. It seems like a lot of the affordable housing that's being built in Lawrence, and I say affordable with air quotes, uh, is in the nature of studios and one-bedrooms. And I would really like to see us have an emphasis on family-friendly housing. If we want to increase the census in our schools uh, in order to have a population and state dollars which will enable us to keep our schools open, we need to provide housing for families that need it. So um, yes, city policy and school policy do intersect. You do have some control over this and uh, I encourage you to use it to support family-friendly affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Other public comment on this item? I'm glad the lady from Wood Creek came up and talked because I saw the placement of that and questioned that myself and was going to bring it up. But what she didn't get to finish up was that area is zoned as a, as a school. It's, and so you're going to create new zoning and redo all that. The issue is, is you have some property you have plenty of property that's around services and around grocery stores and around those areas that could be temporarily used for places rather than buying land and put it buying additional land. This is property you already own. And I'm specifically referring to the property at 5100 Overland Drive. There's a lot of wooded area around the police station. There's services right there that could be wired out of the police station that could be run over from the police station. On top of that, there goes your security concerns. They could put out wireless cameras and monitor the place if they needed to. But otherwise, you'd have police officers able to respond within minutes, I would think, if there was something going on. And I keep hearing people talk about how the police officers are complaining about how many times they get called to the community center and called to the North Lawrence camp. Well, you're going to have that situation. Are we going to have them speeding up North Michigan all the time? 
Are we gonna have them speeding down Haskell all the time? Why don't we have them right outside their own house? And it's also on bus routes. It's right next to a grocery store, right next to a Walmart. Potential for jobs. There's services out there, doctors, medical outlets. There's all kinds of stuff there. But put, tucking these back in these neighborhoods to try to hide them is not helping people as much. People need access, and they need stable access. So. Other public comment on this? Uh, anything on Zoom? Any public comment on Zoom? Jen Woolsey. I, I first of all wanted to thank staff for this and also um, thank the consultants. You guys did a lovely job and um, I appreciate the information that you were able to acquire. Um, I do um, also want to point out that, um, of course, as the consultant stated, um, the point in time count, the pit count is very, very much so underreported. I think you've y'all um, everyone has reported that as far as subject matter experts. Um, when I left my position with the city, I left a list of over 150 unsheltered individuals um, by name that are living throughout Lawrence and that didn't even calculate the rest of Douglas County. So again, I do appreciate this project. I do appreciate and recognize, um, again, the pallet shelter that is being considered, I would just highly, highly recommend that um, we recognize that this project is potentially going to provide 19 to 38 um, affordable housing units. And of course, um, this um, presentation reported that we need much, much more. So definitely recognizing that the pallet project needs to be very temporary and we need to make sure that we don't make the same mistake that we did with LCS as far as getting people sheltered, which we want, but recognizing that the pallet shelter are, is shelter, it is not housing, and definitely continue the momentum of um, building affordable housing for each and every individual throughout Lawrence. Thank you. Any other public comment on Zoom? No, Mayor. Okay, we're back to the commission. Any further discussion on this item? Uh, yeah, just really quickly, I would echo what Jen said and what, uh, what the consultant said. Uh, there's a gap, it's a huge gap, and we, we got a lot of work to do. So, short and sweet. Anything else? Yeah, appreciate the work and good information and um, lots of work to do, but appreciate the work. Yep, thank you very much, everybody who has been a part of this process, and um, we'll look forward to going. Keep moving ahead. Keep moving ahead. Okay. So this is just an item to receive, so we don't need to take an action on it. So we'll move on to item number two on the regular agenda. Consider approving a landscaping option for city streets as part of the South Lawrence Trafficway Improvements Project MS1-00012 and amid project MS1-00012 as part of the 2024 budget process accordingly.
Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Jake Baldwin, um, Engineering Program Manager with Municipal Services and Operations. And uh, I'm joined online tonight uh, by Mark Hecker, Assistant Director with Parks and Recreation as well. And we're here tonight to present on um, landscaping um, options for um, city streets that are being coordinated with KDOT's project to expand the South Orange Trafficway. Um, specifically, we're looking at um, areas at Iowa Street, at Wakarusa Drive, and at Clinton Parkway. So um, typically KDOT, when they um, do a highway project with the city, um, they're, they're kind of their baseline for landscaping is to come back and restore the right of way with sod. That's their zero cost option that they're offering. And you'll see that is option number one on the agenda item for um, options to consider. Um, the second option uh, really is a, the, the full landscaping option uh, resulted from a conversation between city staff and KDOT where we kind of sat down and looked at each location individually and uh, re really spoke to them about our vision of what we wanted these places to look like. KDOT went back, put an estimate to all those improvements and came back with that uh, $4.6 million approximately estimate. Um, so again, that's option number two, the, the full landscaping option. Um, staff really looked at that uh, significant estimate and kind of uh, game planned on how we could maybe be more efficient and cost effective to reach our project goals. And in the way we did that is we kind of broke the landscaping into two pieces, one being the hard features. So we, we recognize that it's gonna be uh, really efficient to have KDOT's contractor go in and do the, the brick pavers, the colored stamped concrete, uh, provide the water supplies and run the electrical conduit while their contractor's out there putting in the pavement, the sidewalk, uh, again, those hard features that they're already gonna be there doing. Um, the second piece of that is having the city come back at a later date and install the soft features, so the plantings and aesthetics that um, get decided upon. Um, so when we, we took that uh, conversation back to KDOT, they provided us with that revised estimate of approximately $1.36 million. And to, to summarize again, we've got three options before you. The first is the, the no, no additional landscaping option, which is zero cost to the city. The second is the full landscaping um, concept of approximately $4.6 million. And the third is that revised landscaping concept of $1.36 million. Um, a couple notes on this, or pardon me before I jump ahead, uh, that revised landscaping option is the staff recommendation based on that reasoning provided here a, a moment ago. Um, and lastly, if the, the commission does approve that option two or three, um, those associated costs would be included in the future city-state agreement with KDOT for the South Lawrence Trafficway Improvements, the project MS10012 that's currently in the, the capital improvement plan. Um, we would amend that through the budget process accordingly because these costs would be um, over and on top of the $7 million that's currently budgeted in that project. Um, lastly, if uh, the commission does approve option three, again, that's the one that splits it into kind of hard and soft projects, that those soft features would be, uh, our, be our intent to budget those costs in that pending gateway and aesthetic project that the commission directed staff to uh, develop back in December of 2022. Um, so that's really the, the completion of my comments. Unless Mark has something else to add, we'd be happy to entertain any questions you have. consistent uh, look. So in other words, like West 6th Street has kind of the brick pavers around a, a landscape median where we do some trees and grass. Um, 
And then, you know, as these are going to be major entrances into the city as that trafficway goes around, will be Walker Russo will be basically exiting right into the sports complex out there. We anticipate a lot of traffic. So we felt like there needs to be a little, a little bit of a landscape touch at all these entrances to the city. Any questions? Um, just uh, quickly, uh, with any of those features that uh, you guys were thinking about proposing, um, what, uh, how does sustainability enter into the picture? Um, having features that uh, might necessarily need a lot of maintenance, but kind of also go with uh, the surrounding environment and uh, don't have a lot of water consumption. Sure, and Vice Mayor, I think I'm past that question on to Mark. That's probably more in his court to address. A lot of what you're talking about is, is a little bit of plant selection varieties that we use. So um, in these, in most of these instances, we have the ability to use types of grasses that don't require a lot of water and or plant material that doesn't require a lot of water. So, you know, I wouldn't anticipate this being a fully irrigated type landscape, but in most cases we want to push street trees. So to give you a good example is Clinton Parkway before we put uh, street trees right down the middle of that the speeds were much higher. So what we try to do is by landscape use, we kind of indicate people that this is a place where you need to slow down because we're coming into a city entrance. So we try to push some some appropriately sized trees that will stay within the median. And then the, the ground cover is most normally grass or it could be wood chips. But you know I, I don't I think conservation of water and conservation at, at all points is is what we're striving for and have been for quite a few years on a lot of our road projects. Okay. Uh, follow up on that. So you, you could, but you could choose something that requires maybe more mowing than, and as you know, mowing has its own cost in the long term. Yeah. And I think there, this project's so big, there's a lot of places where we might want to do a little more or a little less. So there's a, there's one roundabout that would be right out by the sports complex that I anticipate is going to be very high traffic, high visibility. And that one, we may want to push a little higher level of landscaping. And since we are right by the sports complex, we might water or something. But but a lot of these, you know, you're going to be coming off the highway and hitting the slowdown spot, you know, to go to Wakarusa. And then maybe you go under the sports complex or maybe you hit on that Wakarusa. So I think it, it's a little bit of what we want our city to look like. So we don't want it to just be flat concrete, I think. We have an opportunity to really make some statements. That four million dollar one, I think we made quite a few statements with. So we were talking about fountains and LED light, local stuff. But then we got the price tag and kind of decided to back that down a little bit. Um, trying to make sure I understand what I'm reading. If, if I'm looking on page nine of fourteen. That's the graphic that tells us. And then the next page is the breakdown, right, of the costs. So if I'm reading that wide, I only see one wide median, and that wide median is on 59. And that's 407000 So like a third of the cost is the cost of that wide median of South Iowa. Yeah, there's some additional wide median up on Clinton Parkway, about a thousand feet. 
Oh, okay. That's what I was missing. Okay. So it's over there too. Okay. I was trying to find that to see where that was. And so what do we, that look like hardscape Uh, again. I mean, I think as Mark said, you know, some of these roads have a lot of different characteristics, but, you know, Iowa coming up doesn't, it has the median coming up. And then when you get into town, you know, we don't basically have anything in the middle. So this is what, like a transition from the grass of 59 that's split into, I mean, I'm trying to picture what's, what's, what we're, what we're thinking about there. Is that hardscape? Was that landscape? I don't. It'd be similar to what we I showed on the screen a minute ago there at West Sixth Street, with the with the brick pavers um, surrounding the curb in the median. Mark Ecker, System Director, that's kind of a little bit of an improved um, island over some of our others. So Clinton Parkway has no brick aprons, so basically we're mowing all the way to the curb, which usually creates a little bit of maintenance friction. But on West Sixth Street, we have that brick surround, so we could basically put a mower in there mow that without getting close to cars. And it also gives a little better look, especially in the wintertime, it gives a little bit of color. You know, you don't have a lot of color from the trees or the grass. So these numbers we're looking on in page 10, these are, these are the, again, make sure I understand your recommendation. These are the hard construction costs that we're going to, pay the contractor basically to do for us. Yes, we and then we'll come back and do the soft landscaping. That is correct. Okay. Um, and then I guess last question. You Usually when we, um, I was gonna say, so when it says the funding source to be determined through the 2024 budget process, do we see that being a CIP number, or is it coming from different maintenance funds, or do we we just don't know yet? Uh, we don't know yet. I think that would uh, have to be prioritized against other other needs. Other questions? I'm just thinking about the MSO budget versus yeah. the Parks and Rec budget. Right. <laughs> you guys fighting it out like who's going to pay for this? <laughs> Whose budget is it coming from? Um, so even if we um, we're going to do some sort of approval tonight, it still has to go through the scoring system. Is that correct? Yes. So if it doesn't score high, it may not fly. I would assume so. Okay. Just want to make sure I, I'm trying to understand why we've got this. Okay, got it. It could just not be prioritized in that year. What these options? What you have identified as Wakarusa is from Clinton Parkway to the extension, right? Yeah, on the exhibit, they're all shown on the exhibit. Yeah. So yeah, it's from from Clinton Parkway south to 27th. Just want to be sure. Right. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions for staff? Mark. Nope. As the roads go in, it gives us the option to phase in landscaping. So, you know, the in with the 1.3 million as we basically define projects into the future to, to actually create the landscape. It might be a two or three year process to, to get all of that plant material established 
So I, I think this allows us to spread the money out a little bit over multiple years. Anything else? I was just going to again ask a funding question. If I remember correctly, it's part of that Wakarusa we were going to bond or use as opposed to because that was part of our wasn't that part of our contribution to the project to fund that. And I just wondered about this. I mean, is this all general fund money? I mean, the question we're getting is where is this coming from? What are we going to give up against it? And I, I guess I was trying to think some of this would be um, road money. I think on the twenty on that part of it, right? Aren't we aren't we paying that differently? I, I would probably have to defer that to somebody else. Jeremy, probably. Yeah, I don't know if Jeremy's on. Well, again, I'm not sure we have to answer it tonight. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess my, I mean, you know, the, the few comments I got about this is all comments related to the budget, which is not so much, you know, what that these aren't good things to do, but what are you going to give up in exchange? Right. You know, and and that I think has a lot to do from where the funds are coming from, and. In what in what projects, and so I, I, as I look at this, I think there's probably several different buckets it's going to come from, and so I actually, I mean, I appreciate the answer. We don't know where it's going to come from yet. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and we're going to weigh those options against um, other options as we go through the through the process. So um, I look look forward to those details, you know, before we make the firm commitments. No other questions. I'll take it to for public comment. Any public comment on this item? Not. We'll go to Zoom. Any public comment on Zoom? Chris Flowers. Hi. Um. This is Chris Flowers. I said in comments earlier. Um. One of my questions is. Um. We talk about the. The fiscal impact. I was just wondering if we know all the environmental impacts. Um, has has the <laughs> okay? I, I'm I'm a little bit messed up tonight, which is why I'm not there. But I'm trying to think of the office. Um, I think it's the director of the sustainability office. Basically, have have they actually weighed in on on the different options like? Um, will planting flowers mean we're using more like pesticides and herbicides? So, I mean, if if some of our what we choose involves using like pesticides or herbicides, I, I'd I'd want the opinion of the sustainability uh, director or whatever, you know, like the people who are our experts weighing in on it. Um, also, it seems like a million dollars, over a million for, for landscaping. I'd be looking to make things cheaper. I like just the the prairie grass we have on 23rd. Like just, I, I, I don't think we need like flowers and shrubs. Um, but I mean, if it's good for the environment, I'm willing to go along with it. But let's just keep it simple and maybe pass the money on to taxpayers or or work on a project that we need more. Um, let's see if I have anything else. I think you answered some of the other questions I had though, but yeah, I think we shouldn't be spending, we should be spending less basically. And thank you. 
Any other public comment on Zoom? That's it, Mayor. Okay, bring it back to the commission. Um, I would I would ask um, Mark if you would just briefly um, go over some of the concerns Chris brought up about using pesticides. Mark Ecker, Assistant Director. In the proposal we're, we're bringing forward, basically there's not a lot of plant material in there, so those decisions we can make, make in the future. But in this type of landscape, there's very little uh, pesticides used. We'd probably use fertilizers to get the, the grasses established, whatever grasses we, we define. But it, unless there's a, a, a need for a pesticide, there's very little pesticide applied on any right away areas of the city. Okay, thank you. All right, any discussion on this item? Are we vote on it? Sorry, I kind of made comments earlier. I, I jumped the gun there. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I certainly think it needs to. You know, we need to have something in the, in the, in the CIP in the budget process. You know, to to look at this. You know, I am, you know, interested. I mean, I, you know, obviously we need some landscaping. You know, for some of these major roads. Um, certainly Iowa coming into town as well as the new Rock Roos and, and Clinton. So um, again, I, I I do think I'm very interested in the source of the funding and where, where it comes from in each particular case. And then, you know, how it compares, but we'll certainly got to spend some money on these. I mean, I think the question still remains exactly how much, but I do appreciate the staff. The 4 million would have been a little tough. <laughs> the 1.3 is, is a number that, uh, you know, given the, the, all of these locations, um, you know, I think is actually a pretty reasonable number when you start looking at it, but um, certainly wanted to see how it, how it pencils out as we get to the final funding decisions. Any other comments? Uh, yeah, I would agree out of those three, uh, one point, the number three seems a lot more palatable. <laughs> Um, and uh, as you know, they've said before, it'll still have to go through the scoring process. Um, so it'll be pitted against other projects to deem, you know, which one that you know we want as a priority for that year. So, um, given that, and uh, that you know, um, uh, some some landscaping is you know necessary on that. I would I would lean towards you know option three. I would go towards option three on this one. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't disagree, and I, I'm, I'm assuming some of this is, and, and I, I'm, I'm feeling uh, and hearing what the other commissioners saying. It's a little weird. It maybe seems cart before horse, but I'm assuming that KDOT needs to know what we're going to do so that we can move forward. So I, I can appreciate that. I see that here, um, but um, and, and and I appreciate the flexibility of staff being creative, um, and and thinking about how we could maybe, as uh, Mr. Hecker suggests, be more incremental and intentional moving forward than all happening at once. So um, that's that, that makes it a lot easier. And again, I, I appreciate I appreciate staff um, uh, being mindful of that and, and uh, coming up with some uh, something I think is actually probably a, a much better solution. Okay, thank you. I don't have anything to add or detract from that. So I would ask for a vote. Mm -hmm. Or a motion. So I think the motion would be approve option 
three for the city street as part of the South Florence Strathbury Improvement Project and amend project MS 1-0012 as part of the 2024 budget process accordingly. Second. We got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? It passes four to zero. Item three. Number three. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're on to the next item, which is commission items. Any commission items to bring forward tonight? I, I just want to say something. If you weren't about Frank Jansen, uh, who used to uh, be a regular here at these uh, and was very keen, particularly to bring to us cultural items, particularly things happening at the Islamic Center, for example, um, he will be sorely missed. Oh, oh Frank. Passed away. Frank passed yeah. away. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. oh. oh, I'm sorry. I thought you knew. No, I didn't know. It's tough. He was a world traveler. That's an interesting guy. Hmm. Any other commission items? Nope. nope. Okay, we're going to go on to the city manager report. Chris. Good evening. A uh, number of items here um, that are updates. First, uh, just to talk about design standards. Um, we update those each year and did um, checked in with some uh, technical experts that come in contact with these uh, design, got their feedback, and uh, updated our standards. Um, there is a um, and uh, there was a question not long ago about smart meters and the meters that were being installed. So we've provided some background on that and sent an update on that project, which is going pretty well. Um, there's an update on the utility assistance uh, expansion update. Really, that part of that is um, more more to come, uh, more information to come on that uh, before the budget gets going. And um, our regular accounts receivable report. Have to answer any questions. Okay. Any questions for Craig? Nope. You see, this is a public item comment. I'm going to open it up to the floor for public comment. Any public comment from the audience? If not, from Zoom. From here. All right. Bring it back to the commission. Got calendar items. Anything on the calendar of note that we need to talk about or add? Or okay, if not, we go to our last item before adjournment, and that's another executive session. I move to recess an executive session for approximately 45 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorneys regarding the terms of a contract and a city policy pursuant to KSA 754319B2. Justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The city commission will uh, meeting will resume in its regular meeting at the city commission room at approximately whatever that is, 45 minutes from now after the executive session is concluded. Second. You got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? It passes four to zero. We're in executive session. Thanks for coming, guys. Yeah. Don't, don't wait. Yeah. <laughs> don't wait. Good to see you, Ryan. Congratulations on the interim. Three. Okay, we're back and we have nothing to report. So I would ask to move on to our next item, which is adjournment. Do I have a motion? 
Move to adjourn. Second. Um, all, I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 And to all a good night.